0: What is
1: Light of the East is also supported
0: by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a A broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com.
1: Christ is risen, indeed he is risen. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loya, your host. And the name of our program takes on special significance, especially the first word, light, light of the East, because this week is the ending of what is called, or what was called bright week in the Byzantine tradition. It's the week after the resurrection, magnificent week, full of light, the radiant resurrection. We call this bright week. And it ends with the Sunday of St. Thomas. The Sunday of St. Thomas is also being the Sunday after Pascha. You can say Easter too, but I prefer Pascha. In the Latin Rite, in the Western Lung of the Church, it is the Feast of the Divine Mercy. And what's interesting is that this is where the two lungs of the Church, East and West, breathe together. The Feast of the Divine Mercy in the Latin Rite Church was instituted later, of course, by St. John Paul II, which means it's in recent history. The Feast of St. Thomas, that's the Apostle, Doubting Thomas, was a part of the Byzantine tradition for centuries. And yet the two of them converge in our time. is that interesting? We are privileged to have the convergence of these two. In terms of their theme, an underlying theme, there, there's actually many underlying themes, but there's one in particular, and that is God's mercy. In fact, if you're all familiar with the image of the Divine Mercy, the icon or painting of Jesus Christ in terms of Divine Mercy, and if you're familiar with the icon of the Thomas Sunday of Christ appearing to the apostles to St. Thomas in the upper room, you'll notice that the posture, the overall character of both images is very, very similar. I always thought that was remarkable and very providential. I just want to mention a little bit about St. John Paul II, who died on April 2nd. So, we just had the anniversary of his death a few days ago. He died in 2005 on April 2nd, and he died on the eve of Divine Mercy Sunday. And when we talk about the Eve, we actually talk about the beginning of the next day. So essentially, liturgically speaking, John Paul II died on the feast day that he himself instituted. And of course, that was instituted in the Latin rite based upon the the visions and holiness of Sister Faustina, a Polish mystic, and her writings and her visions and so on became accepted by the church and by John Paul II especially, and there's a great devotion to her. And John Paul II, It's worth noting that not only did he die on her feast day that he himself put on the calendar of the Western Church, but John Paul II was really a remarkable, remarkable man, a remarkable, remarkable pope. When he died, many people were saying, call him John Paul the Great, and they had big signs that said, Santo Subito, which means, make him a saint now, make him a saint now, because it's so obvious that he was saintly, he was holy. In our day and age, in the years since John Paul II died and was declared a saint, we sometimes hear, oh, well, criticisms. That seems to be a little bit of a fad now, criticizing church figures. We have to remember something. A saint is not a perfect person. A saint is a person who is fully human. Yes, that's right. They became the best version of themselves, and they did indeed have a particular vision or closeness to God the closest which now that they are in the next life, they were able to intercede to God for us when we pray to them. In fact, it's miracles that come from prayers for their intercession that helps the church to actually clarify that they are a saint. And that's what's happened with John Paul II. There have been miracles attached to his intercession, as there is for any saint, and he has been declared a saint. But even aside from the miracles, certainly his life, the voluminous writing, voluminous teaching he did, especially on the human person, which was so timely, whole teaching, the church's teaching, which is really God's order of creation, God's natural order of things revealed in the scriptures and in church tradition, the church's teaching on all manner of human relations, human sexuality, marriage and family, all of those things were articulated so thoroughly In all of John Paul II's thought, he was really the Pope of love, the Pope all about love, and about the why behind, the sacramental why behind our human sexuality. He wrote a catechism, a great, great catechism on the human person called the Theology of the Body, which makes it all more providential that he died on this Sunday after Pascha, because in the Byzantine Church, we focus on the body, the body of Christ because it was through the body that St. Thomas came to actually believe in the resurrection of Christ and therefore encourage and model for us the belief in that resurrection. The story goes in John's gospel, the 20th chapter, that the apostles were together in the upper room and Jesus appears to them and Thomas was not there. So they go and tell Thomas that, hey, Jesus is risen. He appeared to us. We saw him in the flesh. Then Thomas didn't believe it. Well, one week later, they're gathered again. This time Thomas was there Jesus appears again. Now, John's gospel is a gospel which uses a lot of detail. You hear this saying, the devil's in the detail. Well, actually, God is in the detail, especially in the scriptures. And John's gospel makes a specific mention that Jesus appears to the apostles. He enters the room, although the doors were locked. Very significant, although the doors were locked. Why is that significant? Because he enters the doors enters the room like like he passes through the door that thought he was like a ghost, as some kind of spiritual being, yet at the same time he had the same body, the exact same body, although somehow it was spiritualized enough to pass through a closed door. And that is significant because what he's revealing then is both his humanity and his divinity. And he tells Thomas, who is doubting, he tells him basically, well, if you want to believe, go ahead, touch my body. You notice he didn't say to Thomas, hey, look at this. I just came through a locked door. I'm spiritualized. Therefore, you've got to believe in me. I am God. I am Jesus Christ resurrected. He could have said that, but he didn't. He tells Thomas, he really directs him very directly and very viscerally, put your finger in my hand, put your hand into, not just touch it, into my side and don't doubt, but believe. Believe. And it was that visceral contact with Christ that allowed Thomas to then proclaim the most important words in all of Scripture. That's right. The whole of the Bible, the whole of the Revelation, the whole of Christ's birth, teaching, life on earth, death and resurrection was for Thomas and therefore us to say these simple words, my Lord and my God that this Jesus Christ is Lord and he is God, truly human and truly God, both natures being revealed. And this is why in the liturgical prayers for this Sunday in the Byzantine Church, we say things like, you did not deem Thomas a worthy for his lack of faith, O Lord, but in your goodness, you confirmed his faith by showing him your pure sigh, the wounds of your hands and feet. He touched them, and when he saw you, he confessed you to be neither abstract God nor merely human. And he cried out, my Lord and my God, glory to you. You see, the text is always tells us, teaches us, proclaims what we believe. So when we pray, we pray our theology. That's what we do in the, especially in the Eastern churches. Our liturgy is composed of dogmatic hymns, which are basically proclamations of our belief, theology, and dogma set to poetic phrasing and music. Chant. Uses lots of techniques like contrasts and comparisons and paradox. The prayers also say, how wonderful is this doubt of Thomas. It brought the hearts of believers to the knowledge of God. Therefore, we cry out with fear, my Lord and my God. You see, Thomas, as the texts show, proves to us that God is not just a spiritual being. We hear that a lot today. Oh, I, I'm a spiritual person. I believe in God and, or some kind of some form of God. But see, that makes him, as the texts say here, kind of abstract. It's like that song that was very popular, that pop song a lot of people liked. It sounded like a very kind of sweet meditative song. But in the verse, it says, God is watching from a distance. That's not true. God is incarnate, God is present. Yes, He is distant, He is beyond us, but He's also totally present to us. So He is not abstract, nor is He just merely human. He's both and. That's the key to believe in a God that is both and. That's the crux, the essence of our faith, which makes it different than any other religion, any other faith or ideology or philosophical system. We have a God who became human fully while remaining God, both and. Now, Thomas, as revealed in the liturgical text, Also significant because it says here that manifesting the brightness of your divinity, you appeared even though the doors were closed, O Lord, standing in the midst of your disciples. The disciple touched you with his hand and discovered both your divinity and humanity. And then he cried out, my Lord and my God. You were touched by an apostle and deeply pierced by those who denied you. How did you become incarnate? How were you crucified, O sinless one? teach us to cry out as Thomas, my Lord and my God, glory to you. See, that's that's a significant line in the prayers for today. Teach us to cry out as Thomas. The events of the scripture are not something that happened to other people that we read about, you know, with all reverence and honor. They're not history lessons. Well, they are that too. It's certainly the history of our faith, but they are us. We are those people in the scripture, this experience, this event is about us. And that's why we say rightfully so in this text, teach us to cry out as Thomas, as Thomas, my Lord and my God, glory to you. We're gonna talk more about this magnificent day of mercy in both lungs of the church when we return. I'm Father Thomas Leo on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of
0: the Catholic church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Spend a holy hour with Mother Angelica. In 29 brief and brilliant chapters, Mother guides us to do the same with scriptural references and her own personal prayers meditations and intentions. With adoration of the Blessed Sacrament at the forefront of her vocation, Mother Angelica tells us how to spend time with her beloved spouse in the Eucharist. A Holy Hour with Mother Angelica also contains litanies and novenas as well as Mother's teachings on such topics as resisting temptation, love and reparation, repentance and hour of healing among others. Enrich your spiritual life with a Holy Hour with Mother Angelica, available from EWTN at EWTNRC.com. That's EWTNRC.com.
1: Hi, I'm Bishop Earl Boyer for WJKNAM and W227BYFM, Good Shepherd Catholic Radio in Jackson, Michigan, and you're listening to Light of the East.
0: This is Bold Talk with Father Thomas
1: Loyal. The topic of modesty and its epic battles between mom and daughter will once again rise along with the temperatures and crocuses of springtime. It's his responsibility to control himself. As a woman, I will wear whatever I want to wear. Is hardly sensitive, tolerant, enlightened, mutually respectful, or Catholic. St. John Paul II reminded us, the human body is never in itself an occasion for lust. Modesty and purity of heart are based on how the glories of the human body are presented and how they are received. Since God hardwired men to be more visually responsive, especially to womanhood, modesty is simply about asking women to assist men in their duty to perceive and relate to women according to God's design. Modesty in no way shifts the responsibility entirely onto the woman. It is not an objectification, subjugation, or sexualization of women nor is it gender discrimination or prudishness. Modesty reveals a woman's self-possession, her intelligent awareness of the inherent dignity of her femininity, but also her mature understanding of the fallen side of both masculinity and femininity. I doubt if any young lady would wear leggings instead of a formal gown at her wedding. She knows that it really does matter how she presents her feminine body and through that, her person. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. The glorious resurrection, the completion now of Bright Week with the feast of St. Thomas, Doubting Thomas, and also in the Latin Rite Church, the Western lung of the church, Divine Mercy. And we see them, the two feasts of the both lungs of the church, they converge, they're tied together by this idea of Christ's mercy, Divine Mercy, the merciful one. He's merciful on Thomas. He's merciful to Thomas. He's, he is as... He is merciful to Thomas as he is merciful to us. Remember, as I said before the break, I can't repeat this enough. I say it all the time from the pulpit, might perish. The scripture is us. You're looking in a mirror. You're looking at your, your life, not just a history lesson. So what Thomas is modeling is there for us. Now, it says also in the liturgical text that, O oh Christ, neither the gates of death nor the seals of the tomb nor the bars of the gates could hold you back. But you resurrected from the dead. You appeared before your friends, O Master, giving them the peace that surpasses all understanding. This is a good encouraging prayer for us today. That nothing keeps back the goodness, the mercy of God. And sometimes we, in these day and age especially, we can think that God really is just watching from a distant and not hearing our prayers and answering us. But nothing keeps him back. No human evil human foibles or evil itself can keep God back. And that's part of the miracle of the resurrection. As we sing, Christ conquered death. By death, he conquered death. He took the bad thing and made it something glorious. Only God could do that. He took that horrific thing of the cross and made it now something holy, an entrance, a vehicle to our salvation. So neither the gates of death, nor the seals of the tomb, nor the bars of the gates could hold you back. In fact, on Holy and Great Saturday, we celebrate the fact that Christ broke the gates of Hades, trampled down death, we say, trampled down death, and granting life to those in the tombs. Another interesting meditation that the liturgical texts bring out is this. We say, O oh, marvelous wonder, John leaned on the bosom of the Word, and Thomas was made worthy to touch his side. The first discovered the depth of theology, and the other was privileged to announce the plan of salvation. For he clearly revealed the mystery of his resurrection, saying, My Lord and my God, glory to you. Here we have some allegory of the two apostles who had some specific interaction with Christ's very body. I mean, all the apostles did once he said that bread and wine would become his body and blood at that first mystical supper. But There was, in addition to that, a contact with the body of Christ by John, the youngest apostle, and Thomas. Here, as it says, John leaned on the bosom of the Word. That's what he did during the mystical supper. John leaned against Christ. They call John the one that Christ loved. He leans against Christ's chest. In other words, probably, you can imagine hearing the very heartbeat of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh hearing that sacred heart beating, and Thomas, of course, touches the wounds of Christ, a very different experience. Here it says that the first, John, discovered the depth of theology, and the other, Thomas, was privileged to announce the plan of salvation. I'm going to give another parallel analogy that compares the two. John leans against the chest of Christ, where his heart was, and therefore he is learning, experiencing, yes, theology, as the texts say, but Love. And theology really is about love. The study of God is about God's love. And Thomas is experiencing, as the texts say, the plan of salvation, but I'll translate that in a parallel way to faith. So you have the two important things, love and faith, symbolized by these two apostles, both of which had respective contacts with the body of Christ, but in different ways, thus demonstrating to us two aspects of our faith. God is a God of love and a God in which we must have faith, and he is faithful to us. And there is a plan. He has a plan. We call that natural order in the church, but it's the plan of salvation, the blueprint for life, which when we follow it, we learn it and follow it. First of all, that is that is the whole mission of the church, to point to that plan of salvation, God's plan, how it works even on this earth. That's how we can arrive at being good to the environment, having good government and so on. These are things which are not fads in and of themselves. They are simply ways of making God's plan, his blueprint, manifest and active on earth. Yeah, that's what it is. We participate in God's plan. And so that was symbolized by St. Thomas. Now, in the gospel, Jesus ends that little scene there by telling Thomas, well, very good. You believe because you saw. And our faith is about seeing, but seeing and believing and living according to what we see and therefore believe. See, our church, our faith is not about teachings. It's not about rules. Yes, we have such things, but that's not really how to present our faith. That's not how to understand it. Our faith is about seeing as Thomas did. He saw Christ, he saw Christ, he saw his divinity revealed in his body, like St. John Paul II taught us about the theology of the body. The body reveals God in our very bodies, designed as they are, especially in their capacity for unitive and procreative action, in other words, for human sexuality, which both unites two people together and co-creates life with God. We see in there a theology of the body. And so, Thomas reveals that as well, the theology of the body. So, we see in Christ's body, not only Christ himself as fully human, but also divine, because he came through, again, the door, though it was locked. But we're also seeing what St. John Paul II called his theology of the body. We're seeing what's called original man and eschatological man. In other words, how we were at the beginning, this gloriously... Beautiful human body, spiritualized, perfect, who knows maybe Adam could walk through doors. I don't think he even had or needed doors, but maybe he could, maybe he was that way, or maybe not quite that way, but close to it, somehow we were very special then, and we got coarse, more coarse. The eastern fathers of the church call it the garment of skin In other words, we we somehow got more physical, more coarse, more kind of gross in our physical reality. Our bodies still reveal God, but they're not quite as not quite as sophisticated or clean or wonderful, as marvelous as they once were. But then also in Christ's appearance, the apostles with Thomas, we see eschatological man as Saint John Paul II would call it. In other words, we see in Christ how we will be in the eschaton, meaning the last things in heaven when Our bodies rise up and are reunited with our souls, gloriously transfigured, renewed, a new earth, a new heaven, a new Jerusalem. And Christ prefigures that for us in his own body. So we're seeing in this whole event, not only the great compassion of Christ, his mercy on this Sunday of Divine Mercy in the Western Church and Sunday of Thomas in the Eastern Church, we're seeing that bound by mercy, but we're also seeing God's Plan, his blueprint, how we originally meant to be, how we will be, in other words, his goodness, and how he takes lack of faith and turns it into belief. St. Augustine referred to original sin as the happy fault. In other words, he wasn't being happy about sin. Basically, he was saying God turned that into a happy event because it then warranted the incarnation. The coming of christ to this world the our reality to redeem it and that was a good thing and he came in there precisely because of the sin so the sin is not good in itself but what augustine is saying is that the sin was turned into something good same thing with thomas's doubt christ let him doubt so that he could do something greater so thomas could actually come to real faith and actually proclaim those great words my lord and my god We're seeing this in our day and age, I believe, and that's why we should take heart from this example of Thomas, that even in what seems to be darkness, even in the woundedness of the body of Christ, that wounds in the church, which is the body of Christ on earth now, the wounds in our world, the darkness, that God is somehow allowing it, not that he wants it or wills it. I don't know, I don't presume to know the will of God. Maybe he does will it, but I don't think so. I think he's allowing it to happen so that he can then do something greater through it, as he always does. Just as he did with death, turned death into life. By death, he trampled death and granted life to those in the tombs. Christ is risen, indeed is risen. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loyal on Light of the East.